Yes, uh, Judy and I have uh, three adult children and uh, nine grandchildren. I've had uh, children and I've had grandchildren. I prefer grandchildren. Living in Southern California, one of the things I love to do is to uh, take the grandchildren. Uh, three of them live in, in Southern California still. My son's an army officer. He lives in Brussels, and uh, my oldest daughter lives in Oregon. But when they're around us, and sometimes they're around us, but the three that are around us now, I love taking them to Disneyland. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a grandfather and you take your, your grandkids to Disneyland, you're a hero for a day. But I have a rule. I will not take them with the Gestapo. That's their parents. <laughs> My oldest daughter said to me once, she said, Dad, quit giving these children candy. And I said, if you don't want them to have candy, don't bring them here. <laughs> yeah, I pastored uh, Church of the Open Door. That was our, my last pastorate. Been a pastor for 40 years. Before that, I was a was an army officer, a tanker with shot tanks, and and before that, I was a fireman for the Fulton Hotshots, a, a hotshot crew in Southern California. Uh, Judy and I are Jesus Movement sweethearts. We met through the Jesus Movement, and um, and got married. Uh, she was 19, I was 21. We raised each other. I still remember coming from our first. Uh, con our first pastoral conference with Ted Stone, our Jesus Movement pastor, who I officiated at his funeral a number of years ago. And he said to Judy and me, he said, what do you guys argue about? And we said, we don't argue. He said, well, you will. We said, no, we won't. And we were so new in Christ. I can still remember driving home from Ted's office and uh, saying, we're not going to argue. We'll just pray about it. <laughs> That didn't last very long. <laughs> I want to, this is uh, my, sec most of you won't remember my first couple of times here. I first started coming to Burleson Bible Church in 86. Charlie Bing and I are very close friends. And we were in an original group of Dallas Seminary gra graduates who were writing um, against uh, what we would consider the false teaching of Lordship Salvation. We think uh, what I would say is that I believe in the Lordship of Christ. I believe that it's good for, for me to allow Jesus to be the Lord of every aspect of my life. Uh, but I believe that's a lifelong thing. Um, I believe that salvation is absolutely free. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for my sin and for yours. If you're here today... And you've heard a garbled gospel that said you had to get to work, be religious, buck up, do right, be fine. Let me just apologize for the church. The truth is, none of that is, is correct. Jesus paid the price. Grace is free. When the Son of God went to the cross and died, he died so that we could have eternal life. And one of the things I would always say to Christians is, is that the gospel was good news to you until you believed. 
And I hope you've understood that since you've believed, it is good news about you. That you have been made new in Christ. That you have received the Holy Spirit. And that you have every capacity uh, to live a life only explained by the power and presence of Jesus Christ. It's good to see that uh, my friend Charlie's church is in good hands. We've had a good time with the Armstrongs. I want to bring to you a passage that comes from deep within my heart. Your bulletins might be a little confusing. I was going to preach something else. This is what I preached at the uh, Free Grace Alliance, and um, Gary said, could you preach it again? And to preach sermons twice in a row, of course I will. They're still fresh in my mind. I like that. This came from uh, a really dark time in my own life. Uh, I've been a pastor for a number of years, 40-some years. Uh, I tend towards depression. I'm a depresso. If you're a depresso, just be spiritual with me in your depression. Uh, we finally figured out after years uh, with my depression uh, Judy said uh, to me, she said, are you depressed? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, go ahead and be depressed. I'm not going to be depressed with you. And uh, that really helped me. It freed me up. So um, just, I don't know what kind of advice that is, but it sure worked for us. This comes from a really, really difficult time in my own life. It was a realization that I needed and maybe it's a realization that you need. I had a minor dark time last night in my life when both the USC Trojans and the Dodgers lost. <laughs> but I'll get over that. Let me pray, please. Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to be the one that illuminates the Scripture. I pray that you would give me a capacity to preach and preach in ways that reach hearts. Only you can do that. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The early church was Jesus-centered. Christians met in homes under the leadership of devout leaders. They were called elders and deacons. At the center of their gatherings was the Lord's table. There was no hierarchy. There was no administration. Believers devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, uh, godly and sacrificial living, doing justice in their community and benevolence for the poor and sharing the message of new life in Christ. The history of the church, the ups and downs are easily explained by this sentence. When the church moves Jesus to the margins, following him becomes a weary journey. When the church moves Jesus to the margins, following him becomes a weary journey. And what is true of church history is true of our own lives. When we move Jesus to the margins of our life for whatever reasons, and many times it's for good reasons, it's for theology, it's for uh, working in the church, it's for 
helping other people. But when we move him to the margin, following him becomes a weary journey. When Judy and I were going through this very difficult time, a time that I was down in my heart and in my life, uh, we took a trip that absolutely jarred me back to moving Jesus at the center. There are so many passages in the Bible that I could take you to, but I want to take you to three passages in three scriptures that, uh, in three different books that have to do with God's people uh, going through difficult times. The first one is the book of 2 Corinthians. The theme of 2 Corinthians is triumph in trials. And we're told that the Holy Spirit moves believers toward the goal of living righteously before God by conforming us to the image of Christ, living out of what is already true of us, that we are new in Christ, and changing us into the same image, it says, from glory to glory as we look into the glorious face of God in the flesh, the face of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 3, I first want us to remember that the uh, hymn that we, it was really a hymn that we read, from Colossians 1 was a, was a first century hymn that they would sing around campfires. And they would sing it around campfires so they could remember that Jesus was the Lord of creation and the Lord of the church. As a Jesus movement guy, when I found out that they were singing hymns around campfires, it kind of made me happy. That's what we did. It says, and we all with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Written to these Christians that are going through tough times. For God who said, it says in chapter 4, verse 6, that light shine in darkness is the one who shined in our house and our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ever increasing glory, from glory to glory. You find that Paul uses uh, this type of sentence or say where he says we grow from faith to faith we grow from grace to grace now he says from glory to glory what this means is as we concentrate on jesus as we think about him as the lord of creation and the lord of the church the messiah of israel the savior of the world the one who washed us from our sin in his own blood. As we think about Jesus, we will be experiencing, we will have ever-increasing experiences of glory. 
And that's the way the Christian life works. We walk with Jesus, we think about Jesus, and we will find that as we grow, there will be ever-increasing experiences of glory. I think about the things that Judy and I got excited about when we were first Christians, and they were wonderful things. And the things that we get excited about that Jesus is doing in our life now, and we realize that he has vastly expanded our influence in the kingdom of God and our experience of joy as he uses us. But it has to do with looking at Jesus. When we're looking at Jesus, we're looking into the face of God. Uh, one, of the, one of the statements that my true face friends taught me, uh, speaking of grace, says that grace is the face love wears when it meets imperfection. Don't you love that? Grace is the face love wears when it meets imperfection. This is the way Jesus looks at us. Think about this. This is the way Jesus looks at us on our worst day. He's looking at imperfection that has been saved by his glorious work and is being transformed into a world changer. When you look in the face of Jesus, whatever it is right now, that you feel like you need to run from. Uh, it's a transforming look. It is a calming look. When I worked for the Fulton Hotshots, I worked for seven years for the Fulton Hotshots. And the first couple of fires I went on were just little lightning fires up in the mountains. And I thought I was a real fireman, you know. All we did, we'd fall the tree and we'd stay up all night and we'd put the fire out and come home. And then, I still remember the day we drove up to Lake Isabella in the southern Sierras and the whole mountain was on fire. And it was coming our way. And I can remember leaning on my shovel and thinking, okay, when do we run? And we did run. We fought the fire. I remember this one guy who, had who would become our superintendent. His name was Bill Samborg, is Bill Samborg. Best fireman I ever worked for. Sometimes I wish, uh, as I bring young men into ministry, that they could have worked for my pagan platoon sergeant when I was a young platoon leader, for my pagan uh, lieutenant colonel when I was an officer in the army and for my pagan superintendent on the hotshot crew, they would have learned a lot about leadership that would truly bless their churches. I remember so many times, uh, I was on a couple of hundred fires, and about 20 of those, we got burned over. And getting burned over in a forest fire is no fun. And I can still remember Bill. I think about this all the time when I read this passage. He'd always do the same thing. That fire would be coming at us. Usually it was a brush fire. I remember once in Santa Barbara, the brush was 30 feet high. 
So the flames were 100 feet above that, and that fire was coming right at us. And uh, they had dug a couple of, of holes with D8 cats that we could get down into. And they had a couple of engines with water on each side of us because they knew we were stuck. And Bill, every time, he leaned up forward on his shovel. And he'd say, men, roll down your sleeves. And we wore these fire retardant and we'd roll down our sleeves. And then Bill would reach into his pocket and pull out a cigarette and light that cigarette. And I remember thinking, how in the world could he need more smoke right now? <laughs> and then he'd always say the same thing. He'd say, okay, men, have a seat. Take out your fire tents. We had these little fire tents. They were like pup tents. And they were supposed to reflect the flame, the heat of the flame. I never had to get in one, but we got them out there all the time. What we always said was, uh, the only thing good about a fire tent that was in a, instead of frying, we would bake. Anyway, that fire came over so one side, came down and went down the other side, and the whole time Bill was just standing there. Very, very calm. That was back in those days when they had the red lights on top of the fire, fire engines that went around and around and around. Both of them melted down. I think about that a lot. Jesus is never concerned. He always has it. Next passage I want us to look at is in um, the book of Colossians. The theme of Colossians is Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. We've already seen the New Testament hymn that tells us that Jesus is Lord of creation, Lord of the church. Jesus is enough. That is what was going on in Colossae. Paul had never met the Colossians. A young man by the name of Epaphras had visited Paul in prison and had told him that people were bringing in additions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? But they were also bringing in additions to the gospel of Jesus Christ when it came into the, when it came, when you think about the spiritual life. When you would think about the spiritual life. Chapter 2 was all about having these special experiences where you would really be a neat Christian. It's all about having this insider knowledge where you would really be a neat Christian. And Paul writes this very strong letter. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture is Colossians 2.23 when he says, These things seem really, really impressive to religious people, but they have no power against the flesh. Uh, legalism never works. Never works. All it does is lead to hiddenness. One of my definitions of maturity is to live with nothing hidden. But I want us to think of the drama of Jesus Christ and where he fits into history. The central truth of the new covenant is given to us in Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
When you think of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the glory of God dwelling in you, I hope we understand the full biblical picture of what it means to have the glory of God actually dwelling within us. Let's look at the arch of biblical history. God's deepest desire is that he can dwell with his people. Sometime read Genesis 1 and 2 and try to make yourself not remember what, what is coming next. And you will read Genesis 1 and 2 in a whole different way. You will see this very loving, tender God preparing a perfect place for the capstone to his creation, humanity, and that he wants to dwell there with them. And then there is the choosing of Abraham, and then in Exodus 29, God says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. In Exodus 40, this huge event, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Genesis 1 and 2, God wants to dwell with his people. We screwed it up. He chooses Abraham. He's going to train them. And then the tabernacle, another place where he could dwell with his people. <clears throat> the glory of God enters the temple that Solomon built. And then we come to this very tender and almost tear-jerking passage in Ezekiel. When the Babylonians are coming down, and the, you know, the Assyrians have already come down in 722 B.C. Now the Babylonians are coming down. Judah's about done. And the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. This is our God. The glory of the Lord leaves the Holy of Holies and tarries. goes on out into the temple and tarries. Goes on out into the entrance to the temple and tarries. Finally goes to what we know now as the Mount of Olives and tarries and leaves the nation Israel. God haltingly leaves his people. Then he brings them back. Zerubbabel, after the exile, rebuilds the temple. No glory. 400 silent years. The temple's there. The second temple is there. No glory. Herod turns the temple into this beautiful place. No glory. The glory of God refused to return <clears throat> until John 1.14 when God then tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
It had been 600 years after the glory left the temple. And, the, and God enters the second temple in the person of the God who became flesh when Jesus, the Messiah, triumphantly entered the temple, fulfilling in breathtaking detail Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Zion's king. And he didn't come to conquer the world through political might. He came to conquer the world through sacrificial love. Now with that, we read Colossians 1.27 again. God in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then we turn to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, where Paul is talking about, once again, concentrating on Jesus. He does this three times. In this book, he's saying, Jesus is enough. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, after exposing all the heresies, he says, therefore, if you have been raised, now notice, he's going to talk about our past blessing from the work of Christ, our present blessing from the work of Christ, and our future blessing from the work of Christ. He's using the word if in a very dramatic way, which means if and it's true. Some of your translations will say since. So I'll write since. Since you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. And then he goes on to tell us to put to death the old things and bring to life the new things. And it just drives me nuts when shame and guilt uh, preachers start with verse 5. you got to start with your resources in Christ. What Christ has done for us makes it possible to live the way he wants us to live. And he says, I want you to think about him. The word is dwell on him. Fill your mind with thoughts of him. Fill your time with the pursuit of him. Keep your heart on Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. That's what happens when we fall in love. I fell in love with Judy Crispin. I wasn't a Christian, uh, a Christian yet. She was. I didn't, I didn't know that Christians weren't supposed to. I didn't even know what a Christian was, but she wouldn't go out with me. Um, but, uh, boy, oof. man, I keep telling her, I said, I fell in love with you before I was redeemed. <laughs> Then sometimes she says, you said you fell in love with me before you redeemed. Why are you being so mean? I, go, I don't know. <laughs> but I can still remember opening up. Even today, you can get the 1968 yearbook of South High School in Bakersfield, and you can open it up, and it opens up to every page that Judy Christman's on. I would walk around that school. I knew I memorized her schedule. And I would be, I was a senior, and she's a sophomore. She's a cheerleader, and she's beautiful. And I was a senior, and I was like a stud. I was 
total pagan, but I thought I was cool. Had a GTO, everything, man. I had it all going on. And I would stand outside in her class, and she'd walk by, and I'd go, hi, Judy. One time, um, this was when my life was falling apart. I was just angry. Uh, I didn't care about going to school anymore, and I, was, I took all these classes where you could take notes around to the different people in the high school. And I told all the guys, since I was a big stud on campus, I said, look, if you're going to French class, that's mine. I'm taking all the notes to French class. So one time, uh, taking a note to French class, because that's where Judy was, and she sat right next to my buddy, Jerry Mason. And I walked in there, and I'd always walk in the same way, and I'd walk in, you know, and I'd kind of flex however I could. I'm sure you're watching this. She told me later, she said, you were so foolish. But anyway, and I got this note, and I'm looking around. And I'd made the unfortunate decision. I was a pagan, and that's the kind of decisions we make as pagans. I'd made the unfortunate decision uh, to use Copenhagen snuff. And I had this big old wad of Copenhagen snuff in my mouth, and I'm walking around French class, and there's this strange smell, you know? And they were cooking snails, okay? And Judy came walking up, and she said, Hi, Eddie. And it's the first time I'd ever been close to her. And I remember thinking, she has freckles. <laughs> and she said, here, have a snail. Boom. Mm. I swallowed it. I walked out of that classroom, and I, started, and I went, did I have a wad of tobacco in my mouth? About four steps down the road, I chew up my toenail. I threw up my toenails. <laughs> Here's the deal, man. When you fall in love with somebody, you lose your mind. <laughs> When's the last time you lost your mind over Jesus? How good He is to us, and how much He means to us. It is healing for our soul. Uh, the last Bible book I want to take you to is the Book of Hebrews. The title, uh, the theme of the book of Hebrews, uh, Colossians is Jesus is enough. Uh, Hebrews is Jesus is better. The prologue to the book of Hebrews says Christ is God's superior and final revelation. The basis for all the warnings in Hebrews, or by the way, all the warnings in Hebrews are to Christians. Uh, warning us against losing intimacy with Christ or rewards. Don't let, people, don't let people scare you and tell you you're going to hell from the book of Hebrews. The basis for warnings against failing to persevere in following Christ. Here's what was happening in Hebrews. They were coming under severe persecution. It was some little bitty church, primarily Jews in Asia Minor, and their pastor, who was away, and was extremely eloquent, was worried about him because he got a report that every Sunday night, because that's when they met, every Sunday night, fewer and fewer people were showing up. And so he writes this, uh, really it's five sermons in the book of Hebrews. And he's telling them, Jesus is better than any and all alternatives. You're making a mistake. Uh, he Tells them not to, not, don't drift. Jesus is superior to the angels. Don't leave the church. Jesus is superior to Moses. 
don't be babies. Christ is superior to Aaron, and he mediates a superior covenant. Don't sin on purpose. Christ meets you in a superior sanctuary. It's all of grace. Therefore, trust him. Don't you love Hebrews 11, 6? Without faith, it is kind of hard. Oh, wait a minute. Without faith, it's a good beginning. Nope. Without faith, it is impossible. Very emphatic in the Greek text. To please God. And then how does he finish his book? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I think we're going to, yeah, we'll put it up there for you. Um, I believe that Hebrews is a whole lot like the book of Romans. I don't think it was written by the same person. Uh, a lot of people have ideas uh, who, about who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, that's one of those questions... I have the, uh, the perfect theological answer to. People say, how do you explain the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity? And I say, I have the perfect theological answer for you. How do you, uh, how do you explain the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully ha- uh, human? I said, I have the perfect theological answer for you. How do you explain... Um, that, the, that the book of Hebrews is so awesome, and we, he doesn't identify himself, I say. I have the perfect theological answer for you. I don't know. It's a wonderful way to live, not having to try to know things that nobody knows. Anyway, Here's what he says in, uh, in the book, in chapter 12, 1 through 3, after he talks about all these people of faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these Old Testament saints, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us. I think this is the theme of the book of Hebrews, that we should run the Christian life with endurance because it's a life of grace. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who uh, for the joy set out for him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father on the throne of of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself. These are all present active participles, meaning I want you to keep on doing it. And one where he says, think of him, he's telling us to take your eyes off of whatever it is your eyes are on when you're discouraged. Whatever the diagnosis is, and I've had a bad one. Whatever the fear is, and my son's been to war three times. I had to come back to this over and over again. Whatever the heartache is. Um, Our oldest daughter, her son, 
her husband left her when the, when the kids were in junior high. I had to take my eyes off of that. I had to put my eyes on Jesus because he is worthy of my trust. So how did this all come about? Let me just give you the main idea over and over again so maybe it'll hit home. And I just want to apologize beforehand. I have to preach in Colorado tonight at 5 o'clock. So I'm going to preach and walk away, but it's not because I don't want to talk to you. It's because I have this deal with the airlines. Uh, the deal with the airlines, if they leave before me, I just say, just go on without me. I'll be fine. <laughs> the longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to follow him and serve him in this broken world. I'm praying that the Spirit will use our time together to persuade those of you who are discouraged and weary to look to Jesus to find rest for your souls, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus must be at the center of our existence. The gospel means that the problems that trouble us most deeply can be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that the gospel is more than good news to you. It is good news about you. You have been made new, and what matters most is knowing Jesus and living in single-minded harmony with him. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and just keep on looking at Jesus, especially when your heart is heavy. Now to the last picture there, if you would please. So this is where this sermon came from. It was about uh, two months ago now. I, I, was, I was in one of my moods, you know. I'm in this group called the Redwood Brothers and Sisters and we decide to do life together, and our wives call each other. I don't know why I ever agreed to that, but I did. <laughs> and, man, I, and when I go dark, I mean, I, I don't, if any of you struggle with depression, please don't think you're a lousy Christian. You're as lousy as I am, and uh, I think I'm a pretty good Christian, so there we go. But uh, I was really, really in a dark place. It was one of those times I get, a I get a call from my friend Kevin Butcher. And he says, hey, Ed, what's going on? And I said, did Judy call you? He said, as a matter of fact, she did. So Judy and I were going on, um, I, had, I was going to officiate at a funeral, a real good friend of ours who lives in Central California, um, near a place called Reedsport. His, his wife had died suddenly, and uh, I discipled him for 20 years. We love these people. So we went up there, and Judy said, uh, Eddie, would you please, please take a rest? Please take some time off. I'm a workaholic. It is my sin. I, I, and I don't know why I am. I just am. Um, I have a lot of people trying to help me through it, but it hurts her more, way more than it hurts me. She said, honey, you need some time off. She said, I've set up a VRBO in Three Rivers. Three Rivers is 
up in the uh, foothills of, of the Sierras, right outside of Reedsport. She said, let's just go to Three Rivers for a couple of nights. And I was so down. What I do working with pastors is so discouraging. I've been working with a pastor for two years. I just felt as if it was going to help him, and then he abruptly resigned, and it just devastated me. It devastated me on behalf of the 5,000 people in his church. Anyway, so I'm, you know, for those of you who get depressed, you know, I suck. I never get, preach good sermons. All my sermons suck. I should never start to be centered. I'm not helping anybody. The church is never going to get healthy. Nobody cares about following Christ. I don't even know why I do this. I could be a retired colonel in the army right now. That's where I was staying. Anyway, well, I did the, I did the uh, memorial service. It was wonderful because they're wonderful people. We went up to three rivers, and you know, I actually had a little fun. I actually relaxed a little bit. She, and we were sitting next to the river, and I had built a fire, because firemen can build fires, and we love it because we're, py we're pyromaniacs. And, um, and she said, honey, this is really nice. I said, you know it really is. And this was on a Sunday afternoon. And she said, uh, tonight, when we go into Three Rivers for dinner, could we go by the Presbyterian Church? And I said, yeah, sure, I don't care. I'm thinking, why don't you want to go to the Presbyterian Church? Well, go ahead, I don't care. So uh, we went by the Presbyterian Church, and there was a lady out there who was doing a children's ministry, and she said, I'm sorry, it's closed. And Judy was just so passionate about it. You know, it kind of surprised me. And she said, will it be open tomorrow? And she said, I think so. So we were leaving Three Rivers. We packed up our car. We were leaving Three Rivers. We went by this Presbyterian Church. She went to the office, and there, there's always that lady with the keys, you know. And um, the lady with the keys, we said, uh, could we please go inside? And I said, well, sure, we can go inside, this lady said. We walked inside, and right there on the left, that pew right there, Judy sat down, and she broke out in tears. And I said, honey, what's wrong? When Judy was in sixth grade, her dad died. Her mother couldn't take it, and she started drinking. Her mother became an alcoholic. They lost their home. They lost everything. She had to go to juvenile hall with her siblings and be deloused, and she stayed there for a week. I didn't know any of this. She was just a pretty cheerleader at South High. A Presbyterian pastor who lived down the street, took her in, her and her family. And he said, uh, Judy, how would you like to go on a snow trip up in the Sierras? And she said, I think I would like that. So I'm thinking of this little, lonely girl who had lost her life. And they were downstairs, and the Presbyterian pastor said, if any one of you want to know more about Jesus Christ, come on up. And she sat right in that seat, and she said, this is where I heard the gospel, and this is where Jesus rescued me. 
and all of these problems, this pastor who had quit, these churches that are messed up, all the problems just seemed to resolve because I realized Jesus, this same Jesus who reached down into that little girl's life who didn't even, had never heard about him and brought her to a snow camp and someone shared the gospel. He rescued her and if he can do that, he can take care of your problems. Whatever is on your heart this morning, look to Jesus. Move him to the center of your life or it'll be a weary journey. By the way, uh, when after I trusted Christ and she decided she was going to fall in love with me since I was already in love with her, at our wedding, guess who walked her down the aisle? That Presbyterian pastor. He redeems. He's good. I have only ever known love from Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him when we were without hope, when we were actually your enemies. We thank you that he willingly submitted himself to your plan to rescue us and went to that cruel Roman cross, died for our sins. We thank you that when the disciples thought it was all lost, he rose from the dead. And we thank you, thank you, thank you that you sit at his right hand and Hebrews tells us that you know what it feels like to be us. And I just always have you whispering, I have this picture of you whispering in the Father's ear. It is really, really hard down there. Thank you for your love. Thank you for our salvation. And thank you for the joy of living under the lordship of Jesus Christ who will never, ever fail us, we pray in his name. Amen.